Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. We're winding down February. We have a very special show for you today. Our guest is the president and owner of one of the longest continually running trend-following shops, over 40 years old, Dunn Capital Management. He oversees mission-critical ops of the firm, including R&D efforts, as well as ongoing construction and management of the firm's managed futures portfolios. Welcome to the show, Marty Bergen. Thank you very much. I'm going to use that introduction on our website. Yeah. Well, Marty, I'm, I'm super excited to have you. I mean, we talk, obviously, a lot about trend-following and quant stuff on this podcast. But if you're really going to go back to the OG, the old school trend followers, Dunn is a name that's been around, if not the first, it's it's one of the pioneers, certainly. But a lot of our younger audience may not have heard of Dunn, one being located in Florida and two, since y'all been around so long, maybe, maybe give us a little history of the firm, I think would be helpful for some context before we dive into all things trend following. All uh, right. Well, we were founded by William A. Dunn, who's a PhD in uh, physics. He was also in the military and had gotten his degrees through the GI Bill. And he, at the time, was working in D.C. as a government contractor for the Defense Department. And that night, he was looking at markets, kind of had the idea that there had to be a better way of making a living than working for the government as a contractor. And he first started applying the trend concept to equities, but determined that the equity universe was so large that there was no way to crunch the data in a timely fashion to where he would be ready to trade the next day. So at the time, there was only like a dozen futures markets. They were all traded out of Chicago. And he applied what he had developed to the futures markets and realized that it worked. So the next issue was, where do I get capital? And uh, he ended up, spent better part of a year trying to raise money, didn't have any luck, and his fellow employees, the defense firm that he was working at, came to him and said, hey, if we all pool our money, do you have enough money to trade? And that's where Dunn got started. So he was originally working out of his basement in Northern Virginia, moved down to Florida because the weather East Coast and wanted to be close to the water. He knew that he could go anywhere he wanted to, and he decided that Florida would be the best place. We're on the East Coast of Florida, right on the ocean in the inlet at the St. Lucie River. I spent a lot of time in Land Lakes growing up as a child, had some relatives there outside of Tampa learning how to water ski. They didn't have wakeboarding back then, really. Kneeboarding, which is, if you look back on it, like the world's worst sport, really painful. But now I'm a wake surfer, which is much more mellow and amazing. Listeners, if you haven't tried it, it's great. All right. Talk to me a little bit about where you come in. How'd you get involved? How'd you meet the firm? So my background is 
I'm an accountant and I was a CPA and I was working for an auditing firm in Northern Virginia. It just happened that the partner at the firm that I was with was Bill's next door neighbor when he developed algorithms that he used to trade. And so when he decided to set up Dunn Capital as an entity, his next door neighbor, the accountant, helped him establish everything. From that time on, he was always the accountant for the company. When I got hired there, one of the first jobs that I went on as a junior auditor was to go down to Florida and audit the funds for Dunn Capital. And that's where I met Bill and we hit it off. I guess at some point, Bill decided he wanted to add to his staff, his vice president of finance and I had a very good rapport and they had talked to my firm about me coming to work for Dunn and they they told him no. I guess they had bigger ideas for me. Once I became a partner in the firm, Bill approached me about coming to work down here and uh, it didn't take me long to make the decision to join Dunn and that was in 1997. So back then we only had eight and employees, and everybody kind of had to roll up their sleeves and do everything. So I've worked the night shifts as a trader. I've worked day shifts as a trader. I was accountant, fund accounting, handled a lot of Bill's personal things. Basically had a hand in everything over the years. And then nine years ago, Bill and I entered into an agreement where I bought the firm as he was phasing out as a part of our transition plan. At that time, we probably had 18 employees. We're in the same number now. We fluctuate between 18 and 20. Five years into the plan, it was supposed to be a 10-year transition, which means we would have one more year left. Uh, Five years into it, he accelerated it. So I guess he was pretty happy with the trajectory of everything. And I've been running the firm ever since. Bill... Is still around as a confidant, uh, but he's not active at all in the business. Talk to me a little bit about trend following and what it, what it means to done. You know, and so many different people, it's like saying value investing and everybody's got a different description of it. Talk to me a little bit about what trend following means to the culture and how, how done thinks about it, either philosophically, mathematically, any way, any way you want to want to describe it. Well, so trend following is pretty straightforward and it's pretty basic. I mean, the mathematical formulas that get you there are in any textbook. Really, the magic around it is the way you develop a portfolio or you, or you manage the risk involved. So at its simplest approach, trend following, if the price is moving up, you're long, and if the price is moving down, you go short. The misnomer about it is as the price continues to go long, you continue to add to your positioning. So the more the price moves in your favor, the more convinced you are that it's going to continue moving in your favor, which is also the downfall for term falling from time to time because you tend to really get loaded up in long trends. And then when they reverse, if they reverse in a very aggressive manner, you take a lot of pain. So by definition, you have to be willing to accept those losses. So the idea behind it from a theory standpoint is you take a lot of small losses and you have fewer but much larger profits in trades. I 
think what's happened over the last year is you've seen some of these aggressive reversals that have really bitten the trim followers. So looking back at 2018, for example, we did a little study here in house to figure out, okay, trim following is nothing but time and noise, right? So you look back over a certain look back window to see if the price is moving up or moving down. The noise is how much pain you're willing to accept before you get out of your position. So a lot of times when you're not doing well, it's because you picked a bad time horizon or your noise component, you know, needed to be different. Well, we look back over 2017 and 18, and there are virtually very few, if any, time horizons or noise parameters that would have worked. So for a trend follower to make money in 18, it would be virtually nil if they made any money. Most of them got hurt pretty badly. And, you know, these are the type of market environments that happen from time to time. It's nothing to be unexpected. We feel pretty good about our system because it's adaptive. We move between time horizons that are working at the time. And it makes us feel pretty good when you look back and you say, well, none of the time horizons would have worked. So it's nothing wrong with the system. You know, it's just a matter of having markets come around, which they always do. I can remember prior to 2000 and a financial crisis, everybody was talking about the death of trend following. And then you know, during that financial crisis, the only investment strategy that basically did well at all was trend following strategies, managed futures. I'm not saying that we're in that type of environment now, but I know when we talk to institutions, that is the biggest concern out there today is market corrections. It's funny. I love talking to the older school trend followers because they seem to, despite how complicated their actual systems may be, describe the actual big muscle movements of trend following in such a simplistic way. There may be a lot of dials to turn, but the simplicity of price moving up and down, it's refreshing to hear. Talk to me a little bit more about how you guys put together the portfolios. You mentioned a little bit about diversifying or selecting different time horizons. I'd love to hear some more about that. I'd love to hear a little bit about what sort of markets you guys trade around the world too. Our approach may be a little different than what people think. And I think it's a little different than the financial community views things because we're very agnostic about what the market is. In other words, what's it called and what sector it works in. We just look for any markets that have enough volume and volatility for us to trade. It has to be on a regulated market. It can be anywhere in the world. And we can't be in a situation where there isn't enough volume being traded where we can't get out of a position. We have to be able to trade at any given time. So we're not looking to develop the portfolio around a given sector. We don't look at risk by sector. We look at risk as each individual contract has an equal amount of risk available for us to trade. And when we look at correlations, we look at each market in a correlation metrics against the whole portfolio. So we trade commodities, currencies, interest rates, bonds, equities, volatility. So we trade the VIX, the S&P, and the S&P options in our volatility portion. Then 
the equities are all over the world from Asia, Hang Seng, all over Europe, U.S., Australia. Same thing with the interest rates geographically worldwide. Currencies, we're trading all the major currencies against the U.S. dollar. We do not trade the crosses because the fund's denominated in U.S. dollars, so it doesn't make much sense to us that we trade the crosses. And then the commodities, we're trading energies, metals, grains, meats, sugar, basically everything that's available that's commonly traded. And we trade 55 markets in total. As I said, with the portfolio, it's an equal allocation of risk buckets for each market we trade. And you mentioned the time horizons. Is it something that you'd be comfortable saying, look, we're a long-term trend follower, or it's something that you use multiple systems? Is it one single algorithm? How do you think about kind of putting it all together across those 50-plus markets? Well, we do. We don't restrict ourselves in any way. So when we're looking at the possibilities, we look at everything from a few days to a number of years, and we run an update every week. Now we've done studies on this, and we could basically update it once a year, once every 18 months, and we still wouldn't have any major drift in performance. But it's just easy to do because it's automated. We just do it every week. Uh, We update the parameter set. The parameter set being the time and the noise. We do use multiple methods for determining trends. So we might have a breakout methodology. We might have a momentum methodology. We have some methodologies where we, where we smooth the data before we run the system. We have other ones where we run the system, and then we smooth the parameters after we run the system. And then the only other thing we do is we have developed an exit strategy, which unlike most people, it is not a stop-loss strategy. So we may be getting out of a position before the position actually reverses price-wise. And this is where I was talking about how you can get really loaded up in an extended trend, and that's where you get a lot of pain. What we tend to do, or what we've tried to do, is we get into a position fairly slowly, but we try to get out of that position quicker than what we would get into the position to protect us from the downside. And then the only other thing we do is we kind of look at some smaller components that are more geared to how we get in and get out of a position. So the system is absolutely trend-following. When you look at it from a holistic view, you would never look at it and say there's anything else going on but trim falling, but we do have these components that kind of tweak our entry points and our exit points on trends. So that's basically what I'm willing to divulge. Good, good. Well, I wasn't asking for the exact formula. And as plenty of people have said in the past, you could probably print it in the newspaper and no one will follow it anyway. Talk to me a little bit like Bill Dunn. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he said, I'll give you the code and you won't have the guts to trade it. And it's true, you know. Um, So talk to me about, look, you guys have been around for a while. And a lot of people, I think, have a couple different views around how quants adapt or build a system and, and how it changes over time. Can you talk a little bit about, you got a half dozen research people on staff, if not more, that 
are thinking about these markets over the years? Is the R&D impacting the portfolio? Are you making kind of consistent tweaks and changes? Is it something that you have structural changes where you've seen markets change in a way that you need to adapt? I'd love to hear how the kind of portfolio and, and thinking behind it has changed over, over the decades. Well, you couldn't say it better. I mean, it's adapt or die. So if you look back at the people that were doing it in the 70s, there's a reason why there's nobody else around. Because if you don't adapt your systems and you don't keep up with the technology that's available to you, it's not going to continue to work. If we were trading what we initially had back in the 2000s or early 2000s, we wouldn't be here today. We would have lost enough money that our investors would have said, forget this, we're moving on. So our first major tweak prior to 2006, we always looked at it as a market-by-market basis developed everything for each market and then kind of plugged the portfolio together and then used lots of simulations to determine what the risk allocation would be to each market. 2006, we discovered, or it was kind of, wouldn't say discovered, it's just common sense. People don't care about what each individual market's doing. All that they care about is their portfolio. So we started taking a more robust view of things and determining parameter sets and looking at every market as it fits into the portfolio as a whole. So now when we're doing our work, we look at the portfolio and we apply exactly the same technique to every single market. And the beauty of this is it makes the system much more robust. You're, you've got more confidence that it's going to work in more market conditions per se. So that was the big first change, and that came about in 2006. And then from there on, we have continued. In April of 2009, we added other algorithms to calculate trends, so we became more diversified on that route. 2012, we developed the exit strategy I was telling you about and added that to the portfolio. And the other thing to remember, these projects can take years to develop, or sometimes it takes months. It just depends on on the idea and, and how difficult it is to do it through the research process. And then once we do that, we paper trade it to make sure all our operational facilities are set up to handle whatever it is we're trying to do. And then we'll open up a proprietary account and trade it with our own money because you know we all want our clients' money being used as a test vehicle. And once we're comfortable with it and and that trading in our proprietary account can go from several months to several years, depending on how the process goes. And then we implement it in our portfolio. So when I talk about something that was implemented in February 2012, I mean, that work may have started in 2010, 2011. This is an ongoing process. We're always looking at things. And then the next major improvement was in January 2013, where we started took a different approach to risk. So most managers, well, let's take it a step back. Equity managers tend to target a performance or return, and they build their portfolio around what they think that performance will be, and, and they don't really control the volatility of their portfolio. And it's hard to control the volatility of a long-only equity portfolio because it's driven really by the market environment. Whereas what we do is we look at our volatility 
on an ongoing basis, and we actually look at the VAR, the value at risk, at any given point. And historically, we had always traded with a very high VAR in comparison to the industry, but it was what Bill was comfortable with, which was a 1% chance of losing 20% or more in a month, which, think about that for a minute. You open up your statement in the $100,000 that you invested is now only $80,000 and it's the first month of your experience with us. Do you feel good about that? Probably not. So that's always the way we've done it though historically and we've lost more than 20%, 1.2% of the time if you look at our track record from 1974 forward. Well, in January 2013, we took a different approach. Instead of having a static target for risk, we said, let's adapt this for whatever the market environment is. If it's 2017 or 2018 and the market's absolutely sucked for trend following, then why do we want to continually put on all this risk knowing or it looks like we're not going to make any money? So we have a proprietary measure of the market conditions and how it matches up with our positioning. And in doing that, we've come up with this thing that we call ARP or Adaptive Risk Profile. And the way we size it now is one out of 20 days, we're going to be at a maximum risk level, which is this 1% chance of losing 20%. And the rest of the time, we're at some level less than that. And the key is it's not a risk on, risk off, where it's a light switch and we're switching, you know, oh, great, today's a good environment, switch the risk on and vice versa. It adjusts very gradually each day, a few basis points. But what it's done, our studies had showed it would reduce the downside volatility by about 25%, reduce drawdowns, which is a key from an investor's perspective, by 25%. And what we've seen in action, because we got plenty of data, is that it's done exactly what we expected. And then the only other thing we introduced was we introduced the VIX, trading the VIX in uh, February 2016. We did that because it's completely uncorrelated to trend following, and it's a huge market. And we thought it had to help the performance of the WMA strategy. When we originally thought about bringing it on board, we wanted to do it with trend following but you cannot trend follow the VIX. The type of market and what it's based off doesn't really allow trend following, unless you wanted to do it over a very short term. And what we found is trading costs will just eat up short-term trend following type programs. Would you consider VIX to be one of the more, you know, because you look at a lot of trend followers and the broad brushstrokes often are fairly similar as, as, as far as markets traded. As you look at your portfolio, what are the more differentiated markets that most other trend followers don't allocate to that you guys possibly do? Is it VIX? I know some do single stock futures, some do carbon, some do crypto. Anything stick out? We really only look at the large trend followers because we consider that that's our target audience is the, you know, the people that are investing with Winton or CFM or some of the other big houses that have accumulated lots of assets. And I think the biggest thing that differentiates it us from them is the commodities because they just can't trade the size in the commodities. They all talk about that they still include commodities, but they can't trade them on the markets 
and if they're trading them with any size, they have to be using over-the-counter swaps, which if you're in a position that moves against you, it becomes very difficult to get out of that position if you're in a swap with a bank. Trust me, the bank's not going to lose money on that swap. So I think that's the biggest thing that differentiates us. The other thing is, yeah, the VIX. I don't think there's very many trend followers that are trading VIX. And we can pull that out of a portfolio if we have a client that wants a true trend following system without the exposure. As you think about the portfolio, kind of two questions here, and then I'm going to kind of shift over to some more allocation type of topics. Would you say that most of your or, or all of your portfolio construction algos are, are price only? And I guess volatility would be a derivative of that. But have you guys ever considered adding any other concepts, whether it be fundamental or any other sort of indicators or inputs into the models or strategies? So from the beginning, it's always been price data. I can say we've looked real hard at volatility and we do look at some other things. When I was talking about these methodologies we use to tweak entries and exit points, we have developed some things where we're looking at open interest, where we're looking at term structure, where we're looking at yields. There are other concepts that we have applied, but it's all systematic. So we're pulling data from sources that all goes into the algorithm and, and makes the decision of what is the number of contracts that we want to hold on any given day per million dollars that we have to invest. And it's not a black box. I mean, I always hear this you know, idea that it's a black box. I mean, everything we do can be calculated with a pen and paper. It's just that it would take you several days to do all the calculations, and the chances are you'd also make a mistake somewhere along the way which is why the computers are so valuable to us. As you talk a little bit about the historical context, I know you mentioned 2017, 2018. A lot of listeners should be familiar with trend following, but for those that aren't, and this may be a little basic, but what environments are most challenging? I know every trend follower's nightmare phrase of the whipsaw comes to mind, but talk a little bit about what environments does this sort of strategy work best? When is it really going to struggle? And along those lines, are there any common misconceptions people have about the strategy in general? Yeah, that's an easy one. So let's look back at last year as an example. So after 2008, everybody kind of considered trend falling as this hedge against equity corrections, per se. And historically, when equities have gotten hammered, trend falling's always done well. Well, then comes February 2018, and what happens? We're, I don't know the exact number, but let's say the S&P is running a sharp ratio above 1.5 for you know the last five years prior to this. It just keeps moving up, and it's in a straight line. It's just constant and constant. I mean, look at how much money people have made in equities over this period of time. Well, where do you think end followers are going to be positioned? In that environment, you're long equities. You're not only long equities, but you're as long as you can be on equities. Your strengths are as high as they've ever been. And this is going to be true for every trend follower out there. I mean, there's no way around it. And then in that environment, there's also not many opportunities in any other market. So your exposure is very high to equities. 
February comes around, you have this huge correction. Every trend follower gets hammered. And that's exactly the kind of environment that hurts is, is not just a reversal, but an aggressive reversal that's violent and painful. And, you know, you pay the price for that. And not only do you get hurt from a performance point of view, but then your strengths and your positioning also, you, you end up selling into that, which makes it even more painful. And then when the market bounces back, like it did throughout 18, you don't get to partake in that because you've gotten out of your positions. So that's, that's the perfect storm, and that describes exactly the worst-case scenario from a trend-following standpoint. What a trend follower is looking for is directional volatility that is consistently applied. So we had that event in February. We had another event similar to that in October. And it's very unusual that you see multiple events of that type in the course of one year. So, you know, that's really the answer to 18. And so as we roll into 19, to the extent you're comfortable talking about it, how's the world look today? Are there a lot of trends that are established or you see some that are just starting to take shape or is it a bit muddled? Yeah, I'd say muddled because I'm not going to try to predict the future, nor can anybody and people that get on your show or any show and start talking about what's going to happen in the next 12 months. They're basically lying because they have no idea. I can tell you that our risk, as calculated by the ARP, has been creeping up over the last month, which means the market environment is more conducive for trends. January wasn't particularly good, but December was. So we may be in one of these transitional periods where you're starting to see the trends come back into the marketplace. But I have no way of knowing that that's true or not. It sounds familiar to the response we usually give clients and friends when they ask me about a particular market. And I say, you know, I'm going to caveat this by saying that we're systematic and rules-based. So nothing I'm about to say would actually have any influence or impact on our portfolios. And and it's really just gossip. Do you still want to know what I have to hear? And they, of course, 100% of the time say, yes, absolutely. What what do you think gold is doing? And so then I can just gossip and have a beer and talk about it. But it's always funny. People want the crystal ball and want to forecast. That certainly never changes about human nature, for sure. Oh, absolutely. As far as common misconceptions, you guys have had a lot of discussions with clients, individual, institutional, big and small over the past four decades, despite having compounded one of the best longest term track records, not just in trend following, but also in in the investment management industry. What's something that you guys hear that you feel like either people don't get or you wish they had a better understanding about kind of y'all's portfolios and trend following in general? So we're very predicated on education. So why am I doing this with you today? It's it's to try to reach out to people to educate them about trend following in general, managed future space, the idea of diversifying revenue streams. So I don't run into problems with our investors. Our investors are, are great people. I love these guys because they understand what they're getting involved in. And one of the things that we do here, which I doubt 
many firms do, but if you invest directly with us, they have to have a conversation with me before we will actually accept the investment, at which time, you know, it's just like this conversation here where I'm going to tell them how they're going to lose their money, what what environment you're going to lose in, what the size of the losses can be. So there's no unexpected behavior that happens. And people understand why they're investing in it. If they understand why, then they can accept the down periods, knowing that the opportunity is still there to make a lot of money. And then historically, let's say you put a thousand dollars with us in 1984, which was when the WMA strategy has been trading since. You would have made 58, almost 59 times your money today. If you did that in the S and P, you make 36 times your money. If you did that with just another trend follower, you know the Barclays CTA index, let's say, you'd be up 10 times your money. So. I mean, you're right. Our track record is very impressive, and we can live off of that. But, but it's more than just that. You have to educate investors on what the expectation is. Why are they investing in this? Everybody who has an investment portfolio should have an allocation to manage futures. I mean, it just boggles my mind that people aren't putting money in this space and. And we had a bad year last year, and the one thing I'm really proud of is the fact that we haven't lost a lot of money. I mean, people people are continuing to add to their balances. We're getting new investors every day, and that's pretty hard for somebody to pull the trigger when they're as a manager that just lost 19% the prior year. But it is the right thing to do because our performance from a drawdown period are amazing, and that's to be expected. We wouldn't be here today if it wasn't, right? At some point, somebody gets a drawdown that they don't recover from, and then they go out of business. But we've recovered from everything. So by definition, our performance has to be pretty good after drawdowns. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because, you know, reviewing long-term performance, you notice, and it's pretty amazing to note that the fund's first year in operation was down, I think, 20, first full year in operation had a negative 20% year. In 2018, 99% 99% of hedge funds have minus 20% first year. They close up shop, go find another job, or just start a new fund and reset the high water mark because a lot of funds are just unwilling to sit through that that pain of being able to compound and make up that money. Plus, people will just not allocate to them. But but it's an amazing testament to the strategy and fortitude of the of the PM to be able to sit through that that first year. Not a lot of fun track records you see have that sort of beginnings. Right. But that's all driven by the man, right? By Bill Dunn. And, you know, that's the character that the firm has adopted. I mean, that's something we continue to live by what he showed us, the way he handled the process, the systematic nature of it, always being scientific. Like we never just assume that anything that people are telling us or what we read in a paper or what we read in a textbook, even software that you might buy off the shelf. And we do everything in-house because we don't just assume that people are doing things right. And I think that's a key to why we've been around forever. And that's a interesting segue too to also the, you guys have a fairly, at least the standard, I don't know if it's all of them, but a fairly atypical fee structure. Could you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, so Bill always believed that he wanted to be treated as he would want to be treated. He wanted to treat his investors the same way that he would expect to be treated as an investor. And we always wanted to be on the same side of the table. So we don't charge a management fee. So there is no asset-based fee that people have to pay us. And our expenses and our funds are extremely low because the only thing that we run through there is direct required expense, like the audit fee. There's some registration fees, and that's basically it. There's some legal costs in there, but it's all small. So we're talking about an expense ratio that are less than 10 basis points. I mean, it's just small. The interest, even during the bad times where we were hardly earning any interest, still outweighs the expense for the most part. Now it absolutely does. We're all incentive fee-based, and it's always to the new high. So... The investor comes to us with $100,000 in our fund. If we make money the first month out, they pay us a fee. But if they lose money the next month, we have to make back those losses before we get paid a fee again. That's a pretty rare business model, but one that is, is hard to argue against that it's a nice alignment with interest with clients for sure. You don't see, you don't see that too much. Everybody loves paying a fee. Yeah. There's never an argument. So it makes all of us happy. We're happy, they're happy. Yeah. You alluded to this a little bit about, and this is a topic that's been pretty near and dear to my heart, but also a frustration. Talk to me a little bit about how managed futures or trend following fits into a traditional portfolio. And you know, you mentioned that almost everyone should have some. How do you guys think about it? How do you talk to or educate institutions, individuals about how they put it all together and how to incorporate it for those investors listening, whether in individual or institutional, how should they think about folding it into a more traditional portfolio? Well, so the biggest aspect of it is it's completely uncorrelated to any other investment class. So if you take that to heart, what does that mean? That means that an allocation to managed futures can actually reduce your overall portfolio volatility at the same time as increasing the overall return. So who wouldn't like that? I mean, you decrease the risk, increase the return. And even if the return doesn't increase, because let's say we're in a bad period, your risk-adjusted returns have still increased because the overall volatility of your portfolio is going down. But more importantly than that, go back and look at environments of stress. And I always go back to the 2008 credit crisis because that's the most recent one. And I can remember prior to that, from 2002 through 2007, everybody was allocating the hedge funds because they wanted diversity in their portfolio. And you had people going to equity long short, technology, emerging markets, event-driven, distressed securities, merger arbitrage. I mean, all these things became something that people wanted to allocate to, to diversify their portfolio and increase their risk-adjusted returns. And that was the talk. And the financial crisis comes along, and what happens? Every one of those supposed diversifiers all became correlated to long only equities. They all looked identical. They all lost a lot of money. And the only things that didn't were CTAs and global macro. 
And if you go back and look today at those hedge funds and that type of environment, they're even more correlated now than they were prior to the financial crisis, except for managed futures, which is still highly uncorrelated. So I think that's the biggest thing. The other thing is, you know, people always ask me, well, how much should I allocate to it? And if you just run numbers, we always talk about allocating risk, not allocating AUM, because risk is really the key aspect. Historically, our risk tends to be a little higher than an S&P, so you can get the same bang for your buck with an allocation to us to say you allocate 10% of your AUM. It might be actually 13 to 15% of your risk, if that makes any sense. It does. And so what do you think is the biggest, you know, because we've been saying for a long time, we go to a lot of conferences and a big buzzword this day and age is evidence-based investing. And I said this at a conference a few years ago. I said to everyone in the room, I said, if you close your eyes and you put a number of historical return streams into an optimizer and included managed futures, and we're honest about it, often the optimizer is going to spit out something like 50% of the portfolio should be in managed futures or trend following. Funny you said that, because I was just getting ready to say, if you ask me, I think the managed futures should be the basis of your portfolio, and then everything else should be built around it. What do you think is the biggest reluctance or reticence of why that realization or that understanding hasn't caught on or percolated across asset management industry? Why, why do you think it's been a not commonly held belief? Because I think futures in general have always had a bad connotation over the years. It's a, it's a derivative product. It provides additional leverage. So people get the idea that you're actually borrowing to apply the leverage, but you're not. I mean, it's, it's a built-in leverage. So for instance, if we build out a portfolio, we're only using about 20% of the cash to put the futures on positions. The rest of the money is sitting in cash. So 80% of the money in our funds, on average, is going to a cash manager to be managed. And it only requires the margin requirement to do the futures contract. So you've got that inherent idea that this is very risky and people aren't necessarily comfortable with it. But the offset is this. If you look at a long-only equity portfolio, and let's say they divide it up between 100 different equities and people think, wow, I'm really diversified. I'm across all these equities. Not one of them has more than 8% of the portfolio. Well, they're all long, and they're only going to be long. They're all equities, and they're only going to be equities, period. Now, yeah, maybe those businesses are global, but trust me, it's a small world out there. Our portfolio can be long. It can be short. We're in grains. We're in meats. We're in energies. We're in gold, silver. We're in equities. We're in bonds, we're in interest rates, we're in currencies on every geographical location in the world, long and short. You're not going to get more diversified than that, I would state. The only thing that's left out of there is probably real estate, and I don't know, maybe private equity investments. 
there was briefly some real estate or housing futures, but that didn't last very long. You know, it's funny you mentioned there's there's two comments I want to make. Some of the things you said that I think are, are very accurate because we hear a lot of the same objections. The leverage one is always humorous to me because I tell people, I say, you know that stocks, one, are inherently leveraged. They have debt on their books. Every company, the debt to equity ratio is not zero. And so you have leverage when you buy stocks. You certainly have leverage when you buy REITs or your house. Most people don't have a fully paid off house, so you essentially have leverage. And the futures one is probably just, if we could go back in time 30, 40 years, we should have hired a branding expert. Instead of calling this managed futures, we could have called it trend following index or something like that. Because you know the guys that did market cap weighting on stocks, and John Bogle is now RIP, and, and I think he's a national treasure, but the branding of passive indexing applied to stocks is literally a trend following methodology where you invest more as price goes up, less as price goes down. And that has been pervasive across the industry. But as applied to a global portfolio and long short, I think if we could go back and call it something uh, something like passive trend following indexing, we'd both be uh, in a trillion dollar industry. And this is a question I love asking people because it just makes me shake my head. Probably excluding the individuals because there's more outliers there. Of the institutions you guys have talked to over the years, what's been the largest allocation that institutions that you've ever heard of willing to allocate to kind of the managed futures trend following allocation. I don't know that I've ever heard of any that's allocated more than say 15%. I'm talking pension funds, sovereign funds, endowments, anything, corporate f- funds. Have you ever heard of any that that have a pretty outsized allocation? You know, there are some sovereign wealth funds that have been very aggressive in the space, especially early on because they were really the only people that did allocate to the space from an institutional point of view. But there is no way of me for me to know what percentage of their total investment allocation is because they're not going to disclose. I mean, it's all the people I'm talking about, there's estimates all over the world about what their investable assets are, but they're not confirming any of them. I do know that they will allocate billions of dollars to individual managers. Well, it's funny because you know I think we're probably the biggest outlier that I ever talked to that's not a pure managed future shop because we allocate roughly half to traditional trend-following strategies. And I think the biggest reason why most don't is not, you know, if you talk to people honestly and you pull them aside and you're having coffee or a beer or something, they may admit that they think that they should have more, but it's a lot of career risk wrapped in that. I think for people, particularly investment advisors and brokers and institutions, you know, if you have a 30 or 50% allocation to managed futures and, and you do very poorly, then you get shown the door. But if you have global 60, 40, you basically can't ever get fired no matter what. Oh, that's exactly right. And so let's take it a step farther. Those people who are willing to allocate the managed futures because of the career risk, they're only willing to invest with the big houses. And the thing that is really, I find concerning is the bigger players in this industry are really collecting management fees. They're not motivated by making money. So if you can get your institution to allocate 20% to manage futures, which would be huge, that would be amazing the chances are you're allocating to a manager that's never going to make you a lot of money. 
So it doesn't move the dial. And in the end, the institution thinks it's a waste. And it probably is a waste because unless you're willing to get the risk exposure that you need, it doesn't make any sense. Well, and on top of that, a big thing you mentioned earlier is that particularly if you get to 10, 20, 50 billion, you can't trade a lot of the markets that are arguably less efficient. The same thing with equities. A friend had a good post the other day about the capacity constraints of traditional value strategies. And they said, if you look at a lot of the historical studies with French Fama stuff, with price to book or whatever it may be, and you look at actually the portfolio size, where all the alpha came from in the bottom two deciles of the cheap stuff, you hit your head on the ceiling as being a manager at a very, very low amount of AUM. But you see these value funds that are 10, 20 billion, and you say that's, you know, if, if you're being intellectually honest, that's nothing more than a closet indexer, and you have zero chance of ever generating alpha. The mathematics don't work out. You can't invest in the companies that, that gives you the potential. And same thing, and I think in probably trend following, where a lot of the markets that are probably less efficient, you just can't participate because you're too big. It's too little capacity for the money that wants to find the space. It's like the tech boom back in early 2000s or, or in the 90s or maybe the pot space today where there's only so many companies that are doing these things and there's so much money chasing it. Frustrating. Well, I'd love to keep you all day as we start to wind down. Anything that we didn't chat about today, topics about trend, about allocation that you think is particularly important or the investors that may not be that familiar with this world think about or anything else that is on your mind? I think the only other thing that I'm going to gripe about the space in general, maybe, or maybe the investment community in general, is the idea that the 40X space hasn't become more populated with managed futures type products. And some of the restrictions that are incurred in the 40X space related to fees. So it used to be that a big negative where people would talk about, you know, trend followers, they tend to hide their fees. They're, they're charging these incentive fees, but they're not reporting them on their disclosure document because we weren't allowed to because you can't have an incentive fee in a 40X space, so you have to use it, do it through a swap vehicle. But it, it just blows my mind that the regulator doesn't think that it's a good idea for an investor only to pay based on performance. I mean, if I wanted to launch a 40-act fund, I could not do it with a zero management fee and incentive fee only. And that, that just seems crazy to me. And the other thing that bothers me about it is you aren't allowing the small investor to have access to managed futures, which is the best way in the world that they could diversify their portfolio. But regulators consider it too complicated or too risky to allow it to be available to that investor class. We had considered doing an ETF for a long time, but the struggle is that as far as exposure and how you structure a portfolio is challenging because it ends up as a very low volatility, watered down version of a traditional strategy, which if you're allocating towards a traditional portfolio, isn't that helpful. And it's funny you mentioned that about the performance fee because they actually allow a, I forget what it's called. Fulcrum a fee? A fulcrum fee, thank you, which make, which makes absolutely no sense because- if a fund outperforms in, say, 2018, then you can raise your management fee 
which again makes no sense because now you're you're raising the management fee for future shareholders, not right. prior shareholders, exactly. and vice versa. <laughs> but but they allow that, which is crazy. Yeah, I mean it, it makes no sense at all. And even in the fulcrum fee, you can't lower the fee. It has to be proportional the increase to the decrease, but you can't decrease it below zero. It's just mind boggling. Yeah. It's unfortunate, but that's the structure and you got to work with it, unfortunately. As you think about investors that are interested in this world, what would you say are some good resources for those that want to get up to speed? It can be websites, it could be books, it could be conferences, it could be podcasts, anything you can think of that you think is, is a good resource for both individuals or institutions that really want to get first in, in our world. Well, we really like like Traders Unplugged. We do a number of things that you can go to our website, and we have a number of programs that are done. Niels Larsen is affiliated with us in Europe, and he's doing all kinds of things similar to what you're doing. The one that comes up the most from an investor standpoint from a books is uh, Michael Covell's trend following book. Yep, great book. Uh, you would be surprised at the number of people that call up to invest with us. And when I ask them where they found out about us, they talk about this book they read three or four years ago. And that's where they first got introduced to Dunn Capital and Bill Dunn. Yeah, Michael's got a great pod. I mean, I think he's over something like 500 podcasts at this point. So he's one of the old school as far as podcast hosts. It's become very popular in recently, but he's, man, he's he's been around. He's somewhere floating around Asia. I think last time... So- you want to hear what a small world it is? Yeah. So he came walking in our office at Dunn Capital one time to talk to Bill about something unannounced. Turns out I coached him when he was 13 years old in baseball. No way. What are the chances? It might have been 16. It's either 13 or 16, but yeah. (laughs) How how, how was he? Was he a a decent player or was he at the end of the bench? Are you kidding? He was a catcher. You know, he was a team leader for sure. I would I would have pegged him for a third or first baseman. I wouldn't have picked uh, out a catcher. Wow. Yeah, he, he was a catcher. That's and, funny. Uh, he was definitely a team leader. No. Nope. So. That's awesome. <laughs> That's a great way to start to end the podcast. We always ask people the following question as you look back on your career, and this could be personal, this could be prior to done, this could be done, this could be anything imaginable. But we always like to ask people what their most memorable investment or trade was. It could be a big winner. It could be a big loser. It could be neither. It could just be something that sticks in your head. Anything come to mind? Yeah, I'll give you one. It's not a trade particularly because, you know, it's systematic. So I don't take credit for any of the trades we make. But there's a vent in my life that sticks forward and has to do with me being a done. A conversation between Bill and I. So when Bill approached me about joining Dunn, you have to remember, I was a partner in a CPA firm, so I had just been a partner for a year. And uh, he said, look, I'd like to hire one of your people. And I said, well, that would be great. You know, I'd love it if one of my guys was working for you. He said, well, I really was thinking about hiring you. My comment to him was, well, I got a pretty good thing going here. You know, I'm a partner in Northern Virginia. I'm close to home. My family's here. I like it. And his comment was, well, that's okay. I'm not even sure you could really handle it. (laughs) (laughs) 
It's a great psychological trick right there. Yep. And then, uh, you know, he told me he wanted me to come down and, and meet everybody. I said, Bill, I've been down there two times a year for the last seven years. I think I know everybody. <laughs> but I'll just come down anyhow. It took me about two seconds to say yes. So the rest is history. Awesome. I love it, Marty. Where uh, can people find more information if they want to track what uh, you guys are up to? Where's the best place? Just search us at duncapital.com. Easy enough. Marty, it's been a blast. Thanks so much for joining us today. All right. Thank you. Listeners, we'll add show notes, links, everything we talked about today to mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. You can shoot us any comments, questions, input, feedback at the mebfabershow.com. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes as well as any of the podcast apps, Overcast, Stitcher, Breaker, Radio Public. Any of those are great. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.